Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 118. probably all know Psalm 118, 24. This is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is an exhortation most of us are familiar with, but do we know the context of the psalm or the sections of psalms that this verse is found? Do we know what day is being referenced? Is it every day? Is it a particular day? Why should we rejoice in this day? This morning, I will briefly walk us through Psalm 118, discuss the Jewish tradition and understanding of the psalm, and show the New Testament use of the psalm. There are two questions I want to focus on this morning revolving around Psalm 118.24. What is the day that the Lord has made, and how should we respond to this day that the Lord has made? So before we jump into Psalm 118, I want to hit a few notes for context. The author is not listed directly in the psalm, but traditionally the psalm has been attributed to David. And there is internal evidence from within the text to allude to that, and it is also held in Jewish tradition. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It is a kingly psalm, and it is the last psalm in a group of psalms called the Hallel. The Hallel is made up of Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, and they are recited or sung during the three pilgrimage feasts, the Feast of Booths, the Passover, and the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost. So Jews would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, and they were reminded of their deliverance from Egypt. It was a celebration of the Exodus. They were reminded of God's steadfast love, the mighty works He had done for them. The Hillel, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, recalls of God's deliverances in the past, His steadfast love, victory over their enemies, and salvation in God. So that is why this psalm, these group of psalms developed over time to be sung or recited at these feasts. And that was the tradition in the first century in Jesus' day. So I want to break this psalm up into four sections, uh, verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 18, verses 19 through 24, and verses 25 through 29. Again, we will briefly go through this, and then we will look at uh, the Jewish understanding and use of the text and the New Testament use of the text. So Psalm 118 Starting in the first section, 1 through 4, in verse 1, the psalmist starts out, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist sets the tone of the psalm, commanding thanks to God for His goodness, and declares that the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. He then repeats the same line in verses 2 through 4. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. We see the psalmist setting the rhythm or the beat of the psalm. God's steadfast love endures forever. That should be in our minds as we go throughout the psalm. And then this 
Second section, verses 5 through 18. In verse 5, we see the psalmist is in a time of terrible distress when he was surrounded on all sides by his enemies. They were against him and they were pressing in on him. He felt trapped and he calls on the Lord in his distress and the Lord sets him free or as the NASB says, puts him in an open space. In verses 6 and 7, He says, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And he says, the Lord is my helper and I shall look in triumph, in victory over those who hate me. And the third, or in verses 10 through 14, he then describes his conflict. All of the nations surround him. They attack him. And in the name of the Lord, he conquers them. His his steadfast love endures forever. That was repeated four times in verses 1 through 4. And now in verses 10 through 12, the psalmist repeats three times his confidence in destroying his enemies. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me. Surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. So we begin the psalm with this beat of God's enduring love and mercy. And now we see another beat enter the psalm. The psalmist's confidence that he will have victory over his enemies. The two lines, the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. And I will destroy my enemies. They are not conflicting beats. They are harmonious beats. The Lord's love will endure forever. And I will destroy my enemies in His name. In verse 14, he states, The Lord has become His salvation. Verses 15 through 18, the psalmist praises God for saving his life, for deliverance from his enemies. Then we come to the third section, verses 19 through 24. Verses 19 and 20, we see the psalmist, he enters through the gates of the Lord triumphant uh, over his enemies. He enters the gates of righteousness, giving thanks to the Lord for his deliverance. And in 21, again, he repeats, God has become his salvation. And then in verse 22, this is a a verse we should all be familiar with. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So when the psalmist, and I'm making the case it's King David, makes his triumphal entry into the gates, the onlookers at the gates see the stone that they had rejected, and they see he has become the cornerstone. He was thought of as a useless stone cast off by the builders, thrown into the scrap pile. He was cast off in despair when defeat seemed imminent, when his enemies surrounded him. But God gave him victory over his enemies, and this rejected stone became a type of a cornerstone for the nation of Israel. In verses 23 and 24, he says, This is the Lord's doing. This is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then our last section of Psalm 118, verses 25 through 29. Verse 25 is interesting. We see a cry, Save us, we pray, O Lord. It is strange that this cry is towards the end of the psalm. 
seeing that the psalmist was already rescued and that God is his salvation. We see that in verses 14 and 21. But it seems like the psalmist is praying for another salvation, a salvation that will come in the future. Remember that. In verses 26 and 27, the psalmist declares, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he commands for the sacrifice to be put on the altar. Verse 28, again he declares the goodness of God. And in verse 29, he closes the psalm the same way he began the psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The rhythm that should have been in our minds as we worked through that psalm. The Lord's steadfast love endures forever. So now, I want to briefly mention how the psalm was developed and was understood by the time of the first century. Remember, this this psalm is part of the Hillel. It developed uh, to be used at these pilgrimage feasts celebrating the, the Israelites' rescue from Egypt. And the Jews also understood this to be a psalm of David. When Psalm 118 is read to a Jewish audience in the first century, they would think of God's deliverance of Israel um, from Egypt through Moses, and they would also think of David and his many battles and victories. In neither case were these salvations lasting. Israel sinned and wavered from God. They lost the line of Davidic kings. They fell under the tyranny of their enemies time and time again. And they were currently in the first century being ruled by the Roman Empire. So Psalm 118 describes deliverances in the past, but that was in the past. And the Jews were currently under the rule of the Roman Empire with no current deliverance. Psalm 118 declares deliverances in the past, but it ends with one more cry to God to save them again in the future. And that's what the Israelites would do year after year, feast after feast. They would pray for this salvation, for this deliverance. It's interesting to note, at the Last Supper, in the upper room, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper during Passover. And in Mark 14, he tells us they sung a hymn at the end of their meal. They probably sung the Hillel, which ends in Psalm 118. Remember, they were feasting on Passover. This psalm would have been recited or sung. So, another interesting note concerning one of the feasts. For the Feast of Booths, the Jews were to take three type of branches, a palm branch and two other branches, And they were to take these branches, tie them together, and bring them to Jerusalem. Remember, these are pilgrimage feasts. They travel to Jerusalem. So they would bring them to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. They would throw the branches on the altar, and they would cite Psalm 118.25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. This is translated as Hosanna. So they would cry, Hosanna. And they would throw their branches on the altar. So let's look at some of the ways the New Testament uses Psalm 118. And remember the first question we asked. What is the day that the Lord has made? Turn with me to John 12.
John 12, 12 through 16. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And then John quotes Zechariah 9.9, speaking of the prophecy uh, concerning the Messiah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and done to him. So we see Christ's triumphal entry on Passover week. And the Israelites are throwing down their palm branches on the road before Jesus crying, Hosanna! Right? They were reciting Psalm 118. They were crying, Save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is directly quoting Psalm 118, 25 and 26. To this crowd, the Son of David, the Christ, the Messiah had come and he was going to deliver them. Their cries have been answered. Instead of throwing the palm branches on the altar like in the Feast of Booths, they are throwing the palm branches before Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, save us. The continuing cry, year after year, feast after feast, for God to send salvation, it has now come. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. What the Feast of Booths was pointing to and what all of the feasts were pointing to. He is the sacrifice and the salvation Psalm 118 spoke of. Now, the triumphal entry did not happen on the Feast of Booths. Jesus came during Passover. But what we see in this short period of history is Scripture coming to a head. Scripture being fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. The feasts all point to Christ and His work. We see this explicit element of the Feast of Booths here at the triumphal entry. We know Jesus dies on Passover as our Passover lamb. Jesus resurrects on the third day on the feast of first fruits as the first fruits of the dead, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And then the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promised, comes to his followers at the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. Here in this moment in history, all these feasts are coming to a head, being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 118, 14, and 21, the, we see types of salvations occur. Moses and David were dim pictures of what Christ was going to be. Those salvations, the rescue from Egypt, uh, the defeat of Goliath and, and victory over many nations, those deliverances didn't last. Moses and David were just types and shadows of the man, Jesus, who is now riding into Jerusalem, entering the gates of the Lord triumphantly, the ultimate fulfillment of what was spoken of in Psalm 118. And there is another connection between Psalm 118 and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Turn with me to Matthew 21, sister passage of John 12.
So Matthew 21. In the first 11 verses, we again see the triumphal entry with the same elements we see in John. Zechariah's prophecy of the king coming on a colt of a donkey is cited again. Jesus is called the son of David. They chant, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in verses 12 through 13, Jesus cleanses the temple. He drives out those who were selling and buying. And he overturns the tables of money changers. And in verse 14, he heals the lame and the blind in the temple. And in verse 15, the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the miracles and the teachings. And they saw the children crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And they were indignant. On the next day, Jesus enters the temple again. And the chief priests and elders, the scribes, come up to Him while He is teaching. And they challenge the authority by which Jesus teaches and performs these miracles. Jesus, of course, stumps them by asking them where the baptism of John came from. They, of course, wouldn't answer because if they said by men, they were afraid of the crowds because the the crowds held John as a prophet. And if they said from God or or from heaven, then why didn't they believe John's message? Jesus then gives two parables. The parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants. The parable of the two sons showed how the tax collectors and prostitutes would enter the kingdom of God. And how the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees would not enter because they did not believe John and the message he carried from God. The second parable... The parable of the tenants describes a master of a vineyard who went away and when the season drew near, the master would send servants to the tenants to gather fruit. And the tenants would beat, stone, and kill the servants the master sent. Here the master is God. The tenants are the Jewish leaders and the servants are God's prophets. Finally, the master sends his son, which is Jesus. He sends him into the vineyard, and the tenants throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. Jesus asked the chief priests and elders what the master will do with the tenants. And they self-condemnedly answered that the master will kill the miserable tenants and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will harvest his fruit for him. Jesus gives these parables against the Jewish leaders and then quotes Psalm 118, 22, and 23. Look with me, Matthew 21, verses 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Here we see Psalm 118 being fulfilled before our very eyes. They were rejecting the stone they said they longed for. They 
were rejecting the salvation of Psalm 118 that they gave lip service to year after year, feast after feast. This stone they rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They already had this story of salvation written in their heads and they didn't like the way that true salvation had come. The Messiah was supposed to drive out the enemies, drive out the Romans that surrounded them. And, then, and the Messiah was supposed to restore the nation of Israel to the glory of their father David. Remember, Psalm 118 talks about being surrounded by enemies and gaining victory over them. The Jewish leaders had applied that to the Romans as the enemies. But they actually find themselves as the enemies that the Lord will destroy. The scribes and the Pharisees wanted to be vindicated before the nations without being humbled before God. In verse 43, he tells us, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. It will be taken away from the Jews, from the scribes and the Pharisees, given to a, a people producing its fruit. And verse 44, I believe, contrasts those two groups. The, the, the people the kingdom is given to and the people whom the, the kingdom was taken away from. Verse 44, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and Pharisees, they refuse to fall on the stone and be broken. Instead, the stone falls on them and they are crushed. God's people, those whom the kingdom have been given to, They fall on the stone, Jesus, the chief cornerstone, and we break in repentance. And He breaks us to build us up, to make us living stones joined together with the chief cornerstone. As we see in 1 Peter 2, we are made alive together with Christ. He humbles us to exalt us. God's enemies are crushed by the stone and ground to powder. You will meet the stone. You can either... Humbly be broken or arrogantly crushed. The breaking is a blessing. It is a death followed by a resurrection. By God's gracious work of the Spirit, we repent of our sins. We turn from the ways we once walked. We die to our old self and we are made creations in Christ Jesus. Made alive with Him. Living stones joined together with the chief cornerstone. Those who are broken... Share in Christ's victory over all His enemies. The kingdom of God is taken away from the scribes and the Pharisees and given to a people producing its fruits, some of which they consider to be their enemies. A repentant people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who fall on the stone and break. They are given the great eternal salvation Psalm 118 prophesies of. They are given the kingdom of God. They are given victory in the name of the Lord. And this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So remember, we asked two questions from Psalm 118, 24. The first being, what is the day the Lord has made? This day is the completed work of Christ. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He was rejected. He was tried. He was beaten. He was scored and crucified. He died for the sins of His people and He has become our salvation once for all. He fulfilled all the types, all the shadows, all the feasts, all the smaller salvations that were pointing to Him. And He fulfilled all righteousness. All the righteous demands of a just and holy God. 
satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf. And He resurrected on the third day, the first fruits of the dead. And shortly after, He sends His promised Holy Spirit to His people. And we see His new tenants gathering a harvest, a people producing its fruit. This is the day the Lord has made, the completed work of Christ, our salvation. Now, the second question, how should we respond to this day that the Lord has made? It's pretty obvious, right? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The completed work of Christ is the only basis for our joy. There is no room for arrogance or boasting in this day. We should look upon this day with humble gratitude. That's how Psalm 118 begins and ends. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. We should be indescribably grateful for what the Lord has done for us and how His good and steadfast love endures for us eternally. When we understand the lavish blessings God has poured out on us in His grace through the person and work of Christ, that is nothing of ourselves and we deserve nothing but wrath. And yet He bestows this eternal salvation upon us. There should be no other response but thankfulness. A thankful heart is a rejoicing heart. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. When God is our salvation, because His steadfast love endures forever, we can be surrounded by our enemies on every side and declare, In the name of the Lord, I will conquer them. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. As the psalmist declares, we can look in triumph over those who hate us. We don't boast in ourselves or our own victory. We boast in God and the victory He has accomplished. And we know that Jesus, Matthew 28, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And He is victorious and we share in His victory. And we see the evils of our culture, right? We see the pagans. We see what is being celebrated. We see what is in the universities, in the workplaces, uh, in the government system. And the media at large in our local schools, at times it can feel like we are losing, like we are being defeated. But we have the guaranteed hope that the Lord of Lords and King of Kings is ruling and reigning. And He is the chief cornerstone who will crush all His enemies under His feet. And His people will fall on Him and be exalted. Either you will fall on Christ or He will fall on you. A quick warning for our hearts when we talk about and wish destruction on our enemies. Make sure it's not out of a heart of pride that just wants to be vindicated before your enemies. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did. They wanted their enemies to be destroyed. And God ended up giving His kingdom to some of their enemies. They wanted to be vindicated before their enemies without being humble before God. It is easy to become bitter and jaded in our battle against the culture. Our, our motivation should not be hate for our enemies. You hear of war stories of soldiers who have become so full of hate and resentment against their enemies that the war has hardened them and they have become bitter and jaded. That must not be us. You will not get victory through pride or for your own vindication or for your own name. 
God shares His glory with no one. We are humbled before God. He then exalts us. He lifts us up in Christ and we share all things with Christ. Do not wish to feed on your enemies in your name, but in the name of the Lord for the glory of the Lord. We are to live in light of the day that the Lord has made. We should trust God with our lives and not fear. What can man do to me? We are to boldly and joyfully do all that He commands. And we are to be the faithful tenants that He has given His vineyard to. Our lives are short and fragile. As we saw last Sunday night in Psalm 39 as Brody led us, David cries, What are the measure of my days? How fleeting I am. James says in James 4, 4, You are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. God has appointed our steps and our days. We entrust our short, fragile lives to God, and we should exhaust ourselves in joy for His kingdom. I love this definition of joy. Joy is deep satisfaction with the will of God for your life, as that will is expressed by Him in the circumstances of your life. I'll read that again. It's a little bit of a mouthful. Joy is deep satisfaction with the will of God for your life, as that will is expressed by Him in the circumstances of your life. Joy is not just an emotion. It's it's also a, a, a state of being. It's a heart posture. Joy is satisfaction in God and His will for our lives. And no matter what comes at us in our day, we can rejoice and be glad because of the day the Lord has made. We view all things through the lens of the completed work of Christ. If we hold to this, we will be fruitful. True joy will be productive. The context of Christian joy is exertion. There is work to do, and joy will want to work. And the nature of, of Christian joy is contentious. There is work to do. There is a battle to fight. There are enemies who need defeating and, and nations who need discipling. We fight for joy, and we fight with joy. Joy without works is empty emotionalism, and work without joy is vanity. Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is our strength. We are strengthened by joy and we work with joy. God, you know, us reformed people, sometimes we tend to to focus on God's wrath, His hatred against His enemies. But God is a joyful God. We know that, right? God is a joyful God and He is happy with His work. And we are to image Him and be joyful in Him. And the work He has given us. And if we are His people, you can bet He's got work for us to do. You think hard days are coming? Good for you. Join the crowd. Moses saw some pretty tough days. David saw many enemies arise against him. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was rejected and crucified at the hands of evil men. The apostles were all tortured, beaten, and all but one martyred. The history of God's people is full of trials, sufferings, and contention, but also of God's faithfulness and His enduring love. In the midst of it all, there is eternal joy we fight with. Does this mean we're to be uh, giddy and bubbly 24-7? No, we can't all be Preston. Paul says, sorrowful, but always rejoicing. 
Sorrow and joy are not mutually exclusive. The Christian should have joy in the midst of sorrow. And we know even the sorrow is meant for our good because the Lord is good and His steadfast love endures forever towards us. James 1 says to count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. A deep satisfaction in God, what He has accomplished for us in Christ, produces joy no matter the circumstance. We should not base our joy on the snapshot of our circumstances, but we should base our joy in the big picture of all that God has done for us in Christ. Joy is an individual thing. Joy is a family thing. Joy is a community thing. We are in a fight in our day, and we are going to have a good time fighting it hand-in-hand with one another. One poopy diaper at a time, one family worship at a time, one catechism question at a time, one homeschool lesson at a time, one piece of woodwork at a time, one parking lot paved at a time, one funeral at a time, one new birth at a time, one Lord's Day at a time. Do the next right thing the Lord has put before you. Do your duties. There is joy to be had through all of it. Your life is short. Don't waste it. Do you lack joy? Do you understand who God is and what you deserve by His holy standard? Do you understand the gospel and what God has done for you in Christ? Are you grateful for the day the sun was crushed so you didn't have to be? You might be thinking, yeah, I understand and believe those things, but I still don't have joy. Do you have unconfessed sin in your life? Is there something robbing you of your joy? Turn with me to one last passage. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author of Hebrews is illustrating the Christian life as a marathon, and he says to lay aside all weight and sin which clings so closely, which so easily entangle us. Do you have unconfessed sin that is robbing you of rejoicing in the day the Lord has made from being joyful and running the race of faith? Are you being robbed of joy? Are you being robbed of rejoicing in the day the Lord has made? On that day that the Lord has made, Jesus dealt with your sin. Confess it, repent, and rejoice. Maybe it's not a sin that is killing your joy, but a needless weight or obstacle in your life that is taking up too much time and attention. Whatever is keeping you from joyfully enduring the race of faith, lay it aside. Cast it off. Your life is too short to be your, your joy to be robbed by meaningless, meaningless things. Or maybe you think it a holy and humble thing to always be down in the dumps about yourself and your life. But remember how God's people encounter the stone. We fall on Him in repentance. We break, 
but we don't stay broken. He builds us up and joins us with Christ. Christ is exalted. Christ is victorious. Christ is not down in the dumps. If we humble ourselves before God, He will lift us up. But when He comes to lift us up and we refuse to get up, then that is no longer humility. That is rebellious arrogance and pride against God and His purposes for you. Douglas Wilson says that permanent humility is just pride and arrogance in the fetal position. Get out of the fetal position and stand in the triumph of Christ. One last verse. Let's look to Christ. In Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, our chief cornerstone, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author says to look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross and despised the shame. Was His joy in the cross and the shame? No. His joy was in God, and He trusted God to accomplish all the plans and purposes He was fulfilling in Jesus. Remember our definition of joy. Joy is deep satisfaction with the will of God for your life, as that will is expressed by Him in the circumstances of your life. So even in the face of crucifixion and shame, Christ endured the cross and despised the shame with joy because He knew these were... These were ordained circumstances God willed for him, and he had hope in God and trusted God to accomplish his plan through the cross and the shame, knowing the reward and exaltation he was to receive in his obedience. He endured with joy and was vindicated in his resurrection and exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew this was the day the Lord had made. He looked at it with joy. And he faithfully, submissively, and obediently rejoiced and was glad in it. And let his people do likewise. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us come to the table with rejoicing and gladness. Thankful for the day the Lord has made. Grateful for the completed work of Christ. Jesus fulfilled all of the feasts. So now come feast in Him. We don't have to come to the table week after week and cry, Hosanna, save us. No, we cry, He has saved us. And because of that, we will rejoice and be glad in Him. Let us pray. God, we come before You grateful, thankful for who You are and the kindness that You have showed us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for Your great plan of salvation that Christ has become the chief cornerstone. He was rejected by His people, Father, and that You have given Your kingdom to us, the children of faith, Father. We pray that we understand these things, we view You rightly, and that we have joy, that we rejoice in every day and are glad in every day because of the day of the completed work of Christ. We love You and we thank You, God, and we praise Your holy name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.